Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 106. We're really going. This year has been very busy for us. It's been a lot of episodes. Um, before I jump into it with our awesome guest, as always, please like, comment, share, subscribe, throw money at us if you want to help us continue doing this because we're such crazy far-right grifters, you know, and yes help us you know be better fascists grift the grift also, help us grift you can give aaron money i'm gonna put his gifts <laughs> and go in the, the description as well with all of that said we are joined by another exciting guest and like i said last episode we're very lucky with the guests that we've been able to get on this show and we're grateful to them in the time that they provide to us um we're joined by aaron m stevenson who is another whistleblower who went to James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, just like Tara wrote us in our last episode. Um, whereas Tara was approaching the, migrate, uh, the migrant problem and human trafficking and all that stuff from the HHS, Aaron Stevenson was a DHS, Department of Homeland Security Insider and Intelligence Research Specialist for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And he also blew the whistle to Project Veritas. And we're going to get into that and some of the things that Aaron realized that he felt he needed to speak up on. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Surely, thank you guys for having me. We appreciate it, man. We really do. Uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes, we like to get some background of, you know, our yeah. guests. So, where you know, where are you from? Where were you raised? And how did you get involved in the DHS? Okay, so um, I'm from Crete, Illinois. It's a pretty small town, south suburbs of Chicago. Uh, I'm 40, so I was born in the early 80s, and you know, I grew up in a early 80s lifestyle, right? Yeah. So, so um, I lived there, uh, and I kind of moved around a couple of towns, but still like all Will County, Illinois, you know, South Suburbs, just the way it was. And I joined the Marine Corps, actually enlisted in the delayed entry program at the beginning of my senior year. And after graduation, which was uh, June 2001, I went to boot camp in July of 2001. And if you can pay attention, <laughs> that's where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was in boot camp at 11. I graduated a month afterwards. Um, and then I wanted to go overseas right away. So I volunteered to go to Okinawa and I did deploy, which was like, I thought I would because I'd be in Okinawa, which is closer to Afghanistan. So, and then, um, I went back to the stateside to a, a very deploying unit, um, in California and went to Iraq in 2004 through 2005. And then I went back two more times in 2007, 2008. Uh, so I spent a good amount of time over there and then I, I got out and I was enlisted I was trying to become a, a federal employee. I was trying to get actually with DHS originally because I just thought it was a, a good thing. Like, oh yeah, you know what? I want to protect my country still. I just don't want to do it in the Marine Corps anymore. And it takes so long to become a Fed for whatever reason. Plus I didn't have my degree yet. Um, I, just, I wasn't the best candidate to get a job. So in the meantime, I went to go uh, be a contractor for DOD. And I worked out of the National Ground Intelligence Center and uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, both out of Charlottesville in Virginia. And that was from 2010, 2011, and 2012. And in that time, I went to Afghanistan three times. So in 2010, I was in uh, Helmand Province with the Marines and UK forces during uh, Op Mashtarik and Op Herrick, respectively. And then I joined a special forces community, supported them with you know biometrics and forensics. And I did that in 2011 and 2012. And that was actually a lot of, that was a great experience because you really get a, you know, you, you learn a whole bunch of new things. I was used to like, you know, conventional forces and counterinsurgency, and this was all just a whole different realm. So I had a great time doing that. And then that actually 
if we get to talk about Afghanistan later, that kind of made me intelligent about that. And so then um, in 2012, I finally got a job offer to join DHS. And I asked a, you know, a mentor of mine, and I was like, you know, should I do it? Like, I don't, I don't know if I should or not. This is the right spot for me. And he was a straight so up. He was like, Dude, how many years? Right. So, well, I thought so. Right. Yeah. And, but he told me he's been pretty real by just saying like, you know, how many applications have you done? I was like, oh, probably 450, you know, a lot. It's like, how many interviews? I was like three. He's like, how many job offers? I'm like one. He's like, take it. So I took it and, um, it was with a, a really small component actually called us visit. Um, I forgot what it stands for exactly. And it's still an office which exists, but basically what we were doing were background checks for certain categories of aliens. Um, that was in September of 2012. And then, like, I'm not sure if you guys are calling out, but, like, right after that, there was that big sequester that Ted Cruz, you know, kind of pushed in 20, like, I think 2013. And there was the government shutdown, the first of apparently many. Right. And in that time frame, um, basically, DHS was already kind of structuring for it, and they are ready for it. And they just basically moved our little office inside a U.S. visit over to CBP. And we were still working in the same place. I looked up visit, yeah, you got so it? It's Visitor and Immigrant Status Indicator Technology. What it stands for yeah so yeah that's the tech that does it uh the office basically we're just people that kind of utilize the information okay. so um we were working out of the cbp's location called the national targeting the national targeting center for passengers or the ntc and we just vetted aliens coming in the country so because we did a good background in both iraqis and afghans we were primarily looking at refugees coming from iraq and afghanistan and then eventually uh special immigrant visas and I was there for about 18 months. And basically right away, probably within like five months being there, I realized like, okay, we're finding, you know, derogatory information. Like, you know, these guys are bad dudes and we can prove it. And we can, you know, do this pretty quickly. So why are these dudes still a lot in the country? I wasn't, I wasn't getting it. And the watch officers were like, well, they've already got a status. They've already got a travel document. They've already got whatever. It's like, yeah, I know, but like, he's a terrorist. And they were like, yeah, I know, but like, you know, it's just the way it is. And I was like, all right. So I'm, I'm still a little bit naive. I've been through the Iraq war, been through the Afghan war, and now I'm seeing this. So I was like, okay, well, I still want to do my best. I still want to do whatever I can. So I'm going to go try to go to the root of the problem and go to USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And I was like, if I can go there, maybe I can affect change where, you know, people will, I can help, you know, like leaders or whatever, understand like, vetting problems or just whatever. I'm, I'm that naive to think I can still make a difference. And so I'm there. I joined in 2014. I got fired uh, about a month ago in 2023. And in that time frame, it took about maybe two and a half years before I realized like, wow, this whole thing is broke. So while at USCIS, yes. So while at USCIS, uh, this is where it kind of comes into the trafficking part. In 2016, um, I was invited to participate to represent my section of FTN or of uh, USCIS. I'm sorry for all the acronyms, guys, but it's, you guys got to be with it. And it's called uh, FDNS, which is Fraud Detection National Security. So, like, we're the part of CIS that looks for bad guys. And they, we were there to represent um, our, our part of uh, CIS and help out with this, this new program called the Transnational Organized Crime Working Group. And it's very similar to understand it of the terrorist watch list. This, the terrorist watch list looks for international terrorists. Cool. The talk watch list with the transnational organized crime watch list, that looks for international gangsters. Cool. Okay. And we knew how it worked. We yeah, so, well, it started off um, as, I'm sorry, my dogs are here. 
It started off with with um basically it was a smaller data set. And I won't get too into details because it is a good program. It does identify people, but I'll definitely say enough to where I'm not like, you know, trying to still be a fed or anything. It was a small group population they were looking at originally, just because it was a pro it was a pilot program. And it was basically Eastern European gangsters. So in reality, we didn't do much at CIS because these are, you know, gangsters. They don't go to CIS to get immigration benefit. You don't go to America to go and do crime and then go, well, can I get a visa? Say, no, you're, you're a criminal, you're a bad guy. And um, that changed when Trump came in. So Trump enters the fold and then his administration puts on MS-13, 18th Street Gang, uh, Paisis, and other cartels. Mm. And it's because it was a pilot program, this thing's only at about 10,000. Okay, well, once Trump comes in, it's like it's met right away. So they increase it to 20,000, right away it's met. And so it's like, we started seeing it at CIS then because you know we have a Southwest land border. So these guys don't have to fly in the country. So they can just right. walk right across. So we started seeing encounters all the time now. We went from seeing like one, maybe two or three a year, to all of a sudden seeing like maybe seven a week. And that kind of set up a buzzer has been like, oh wow, this, yeah. this might have us play with us. We're, we're gonna be seeing a lot of bad guys looks like. And again, this watch list was capped at like 20,000. And they kept hitting that threshold and they kept, you know, just raising it by 10,000, which is a long story. I can get into it, but it was pretty shady. Um, to understand one thing, by the way, the terrorism watches database, that has no limit. Like there's over a million identities on that thing. Okay. But the talk watch list, which we share a border for these countries to come into, that thing got capped, by the way, at 40,000. And there was a lot of parts of the government that were arguing to keep it at that. They did not want to just unleash it. Like, what's the ostensible justification for keeping it that way? I won't argue that because I won't, and I won't answer that because there is none. The, <laughs> the, the groups that were doing this, um, so it was basically only because, like, CBP, ICE, us, state, DOJ, all these people were like, no, 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 we don't want to do this cap. Like, we know this is a major problem. We know this. But the only people that were arguing for it was our general counsel at CIS, lawyers, the general counsel at DHS, lawyers. Mm. and the dhs office of policy that was it everybody else was like no like unload this thing where we we need to start finding these guys so we can't, can i can't believe that no let's just just let's cap it you know like you know a few like ten thousand twenty thousand you know that's fine we don't need, we we don't need to catch all the yeah. bad guys i remember tara mentioning that oh it gets worse <laughs> guys this gets worse Okay, oh, so where was I at? <laughs> uh, you were capping the bad guys and them not wanting to. Yeah. Un so, yep. So we all argued, you know, again, unload this thing, let us find them. They argued no, and then they end up winning. Um, so now, just kind of fast forward in this time frame, and it's 2021, and you know, so now the that government lockdown's over. They're they're going to start opening up the border. Like you know, here we go, and we started seeing actually a lot of reporting in late December to early January of cbp reporting on classified that was saying like yep these dudes are coming over we're getting a lot of people coming over right now and these groups are coming in and we're talking to them and this is purely economic which makes sense it's very logical you know the whole world was just shut down these people are already behind us anyways when it comes to standard living like they are hurting very bad so they're going to come over because they need money for their families they're not justifying it i'm not saying it's legal but it's like understand that's what they were doing Dude, they're like and, giving them like airdrops of free clothes, food, medical care, yeah. legal help, like anything. In like New York City. the New York yeah. City is making it very, very hard for migrants to be like, no, nah, I don't want to go there. Like, I think yeah, so in, in, in the facilities right now. 
um, that's in insane. 2000 have come into the yeah, city 50, over, over the last through. year. But they're they're, they're really caring for like 31,000 right now yeah. to the tune yeah. of 4.6 billion dollars a day. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I'm, I don't know where that money's coming from. Yeah. It's just they print it. <laughs> that's it. So um, exactly. Um, so in February of 2021, I you know so every day by the way, um, whenever there's an encounter of one of these talk aliens, what we call them talk aliens, whenever they are encountered by um, a lot of different things. So they could be on a deportation flight out of here. We get a notification via an email that says, you know, here's the bad guy. This is his alien number. This is his date of birth. This is why you're seeing him right now. So we would see things like a deportation flight, an arrest, get pulled over. He went to USCIS for an immigration benefit, whatever, right? Well, in February, 2021, we, I see one pop in my email that says six USC UAC 279 sponsor. I was like, what the hell's that? I, was like, I don't know, whatever. I'm still working, whatever, whatever. And in March, I see another one. And I was like, okay, I've seen that code before. So I just copy and pasted it with my inbox. And yep, there it is from you know February, 2021. But there was nothing prior to that. So I was like, what the hell is this then? So I just, I Googled it. And it comes back saying, you know, this is the, the US code. Like this is the process to sponsor an unidentified alien child, UAC. I was like, what the hell's a UAC? Like, I don't know what this means. So I look into it and it's like, okay, these are the kids coming across the border that are not with family. It's like, all right, so why would an MS-13 member try to be sponsor a child? Yeah. So I looked up these guys and like, you know, they've got like, they've got like rap sheets. They've got a, a crime history on them. They're on the, yeah. they're on the freaking talk watch list, you know, right. transnational organized crime. And they were allowed to- And I was like, all right. Yeah, so I was like, all right, well, I'll keep an eye on this then. April, another one comes in. I was like, all right, that's three and three months, one per month. That that's it for me. Let's start looking into this. So I went into our like our system that had houses a bunch of just reports and I looked for all the keywords, you know, child, sponsor, unaccompanied, UAC, looking for anything possible, trafficking, looking for anything. Nothing exists. I reach out to other parts of DHS. I look to CBP, ICE, uh, Border Patrol, they've got a few. Nothing. That's strange. So I went to DHS INA. That stands for Intelligence Analysis. They are like the Intel folks that are the component of DHS that's actually part of the intelligence community. Okay. They had nothing at all. I was like, okay, I'll reach out to DOJ and I'll see what they have. And I looked up, you know, the Department of Labor and I was trying to find somebody looking at this thing and nobody had yet. I was like, okay, so by this time it's getting to May, another one, June, another one. And then that's when I hit up Project Veritas and I was like, no, this is like, guys, this is just insane. There, there's so, there, this is, again, there's about a quarter million um, illegal, you know, crossings per month. And there's only 40,000 on this watch list. These numbers aren't, you know, there's, there's going to be, there's got to be more kids in this than just these four kids. Right. Um, and so I, you know, kept looking at stuff, trying to figure things out. And then I sat down with them and, you know, did the interview, trying to find more information out. And by the time the video got released, there was a total of nine, actually. In the video, they said there was only eight because that's what happened at the time. But in that short time frame between, you know, the interview and then they finished it, another one occurred. And at that point in time, I was just like, this has got to be, this is insane. And I just read what's called a collection primer. And this is a, yeah, here comes the government ease. So a collection primer is a document which basically says, as an organization, this is how we're going to be looking for certain things in intelligence. Um, you know, one thing that people understand is it's, it's a very structured enterprise. Like the president says, these are my priorities. Like, okay, cool. And then those departments go, well, this is what he wants to know about. Bing, 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 bing. Okay. And each one of those bings, 
Like, what are the indicators of warnings? What are the gaps that we don't know about? What are questions that we can answer that might answer those you know, gaps? So, they, so it's kind of flows all the way down. And so I looked at this document, it's about 80 pages, it's pretty thick, and nothing was in there about trafficking. I was like, there's no way, I just read this whole thing. So I looked online on the PDF version, and that is, you know, it's control fine, let's have a little fun with this thing. Trafficking, no, child, no, sponsor, no, UAC, no. No results on this thing about trafficking. And this primer was dedicated to organized or international organized crime. And so I was like, all right, well, that makes sense why no one's talking about it and why no one has any written intelligence on it. And that's because no one's telling them to. So why would they go out and look for a problem that they're not being told is a problem? Right. And at that point in time, because I went to Veritas, I was, you know, in shadows. People don't know how I was. My voice yeah. was like, you know, hidden. Yeah. Plus they're booted off Twitter. I remember that. Oh, you, you remember the video? Yeah. Before You're one of the few. Before your identity was even put out, but I've yeah. been following, you know, James O'Keefe and Veritas and all of that work for years. So I do remember yeah. that story. And so, but at this time, you were one of the few because uh, Veritas was booted off Twitter. James O'Keefe was booted off Twitter. Yep. Like they had a smaller reach. Not that I cared. I wasn't going to say like, well, let's wait till they get back maybe. It's like, no, we're going to push this thing out was, and, you know, go with I it. I was still following them. If anything, them getting booted off Twitter made me follow them even closer, closer yeah, people like me at least well and that's what gave me the credibility to go to them um there was the, f the first real thing to be honest was when they released the epstein uh abc tape where they were like you know abc oh, yeah. news and Re amy robox is like yeah we killed the epstein story whatever that made me go like wow they actually released that these dudes are legit that that was it for me so that um, was what you saw that inspired you to approach them was realizing that no so i when i first hit them up I went to them about the trafficking in 2021, but I first hit him up just to tell him who I was. And uh, it was October, 2020. Uh, James O'Keefe was on the Tim Pool show, his nightly show, and I was watching it. And they're basically saying like, you know, guys, I think if, if you're out there and if you can see that there's problems, like you are the catalyst to, to do the change. Like you can either decide to do something or not at all. And I was just like, well, I know like works really bad. Like it's actually pretty corrupt. Like, maybe I should do this. So I called up their signal line, or I think I messaged them. Next day they called back, and I was sweating bullets. <laughs> I was so nervous. Sure. Um, I talked, yeah, I, I talked to the guy, because um, I, I had a TSSCI. Like, you know, I was, I've been a Fed at this point for like uh, a little over nine years now, but then with my Marine Corps time, like, this is my career, you know? Right. And, but it's like, but I also know how bad it is, too. And so they called back, talked a little bit. And then I got in touch with the journalists with, with theirs, and I was so nervous the first time I met them. Like, yeah, I had a burner phone. I turned it off, put it, I wrapped it in foil. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. What am I doing? Then I kind of calmed down and realized again, like, nope, things are that bad. And we, I met the journalists. We, you know, built a little rapport. Kind of felt more comfortable. And then I just told them, I was like, you know, guys, whenever something happens, like, I'll come to you guys. All right. Now that I know you, we're cool. And um. And there's actually a fun little, fun little cool story. So then they were like, hey, James O'Keefe's going to be in your area because there's a Trump rally in D.C. on January 6th. That's in a few days. You want to go? And I was living in Alexandria, Virginia. And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, we're off that day. So might as well go up there. And I guess meet him. I never met him before. So, yeah, it'd be kind of cool. And at first they were saying, like, you know, do you guys want to meet at your place? Do you want to find somewhere else? And I was like, no, like, I'm sure it's going to be busy. Like, I'll, wherever he's at, I'll go around him. I know the area. And so, you know, I went to DC, got a parking garage and like cell service sucks in DC, but also when you put in like a million additional people, it gets really bad. Right. And I'm trying to get a hold of them and I'm, you know, talking with through one of their like other people that work there. 
then we finally meet up and then we, you know, we're in his hotel room. It's me, him, another journo, a couple other guys. And we're just, I'm explaining to him like, you know, things that are wrong with USCIS. We're talking, talking, talking. And then someone's checking his phone and he's like, he was kind of back of the room. He's like, Hey, they just entered the Capitol. I was like, what? So we turned the TV on and then you see it like, bam. That's when I was, we were just kind of sitting there looking at it and I was just like, whew, I guess shit's going to change, huh, guys? Like, you know, wow. So and that's what we have, some, we have something in common. Um, Brent and I were also there that day. It's actually, oh, yes, we were. Yes, we were. <laughs> um, we had the FBI show up looking for us twice, actually, to question us over that stuff. Um, and we talked more at length about this with Kyle Serafin. Um, we had him on as our first guest of, of this year. So yeah. that was what, episode 95? 95. 95. Definitely go check that conversation out. And we went in, into this stuff with him as well. But um, yeah, we have that in common. We were there that day. Um, we found out through the crowd, actually. So word passed down through the crowd. And like you said, cell signals were crap. Like, crap. I couldn't yeah. get online or see anything. So I didn't, re I didn't see that news through an online update. We heard it through the crowd. People were like, dude, they just sent you the yeah, We heard like yeah. some kind of you know explosion and then we saw this poof of smoke because we were watching Trump speak yeah. and then he finished speaking and we started to march over. Yeah. By the time we got there, it was like chaos. And yeah. we were like, I was like, I'm not going anywhere near that. Yeah. And we saw dude <laughs> go through the crowd that were trying to recruit yes, people to people go to in. Go. Yeah. They're like, we're seizing the Capitol. Come really? with us, join us. I'm like, no, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> That day was crazy, but, you know, we showed up to talk to people, interview people, get footage, bear witness. Like, we knew whatever happened. It was yeah, I have some interviews deal, from a couple so. of the people that were there yeah. in the crowd on why they were there and, you know, what they were concerned about. Yeah. And we can't say that here because we're on YouTube, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, you get the, you, you know what they were concerned about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that was uh, around when we decided we were going to do this show. So that was like our first like journalist. And I just got the camera. Adventure. So I was like, let's take the camera. Yeah. We'll go down. I know they're going to lie about this thing. Yes. Like I had a feeling they were going <laughs> to yeah. lie about it. I didn't know what they were going to yeah. do or how they were going to spin it, but I knew they were going to lie. So I was like, let's go. Let's be witnesses. Let's well, talk. To people. So that's what's funny because, you know, the just the way they they frame it of this horrible whatever right so i wasn't even on the capitol grounds um i was like what probably two three blocks away and my old work was actually headquartered like two blocks away i used to walk to the capitol on lunch all the time i would you know get a zoom scooter if you want to call it those little uber scooters i just for lunch just kind of you know mess around whatever go to food truck i would always help out a bunch of foreign tourists and they're like you know with the map upside down i'm like no guys two lefts and a right don't go to that coffee shop one sucks stay away from there you know, it's like little things. So I knew the area and I went over to a Starbucks because it would be open. And like it, all you saw inside there was like, you know, so a couple older, you know, Trump, Trump supporters, not wearing a mask. And then of course the younger people working inside who are DC residents, they're all like, you know, put your mask on. It's like, that was the conflict I saw that day. It's the things like that. Just those little, like those little 2020 moments. And it was one of those things where it's like, you know, okay, well, whatever. Right. And then like, I got to go move my car because the parking garage was going to close. And I was just trying to figure that out. And then after the, I met with James, went back to the garage, you know, that different garage, got my car out. The traffic sucked, which usually is the case. But driving out of there, it's like, there, there wasn't any panic in the streets. There was no whatever. So when I got, you know, home and I, you know, flip on the news a little bit and they're like, it already started the whole, like, you know, yeah. chaos under, you know, chaos and destruction. And I was just like, what are you guys talking about? Like prepackaged. Dude. Yeah, it was awesome anyways. I love January that, 6th. That, that story is great because it, fill, it fills in some things for me because I remember that night 
James put out a video from his hotel room after all the events saying, you know, we're, I just met with an insider. You know, we have new stories that are going to be coming out. That yeah, that was me. And, that, and you were the guy that he was talking about <laughs> that he met with. So that's interesting to know. Huh. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Right. So, you know, so you, you first approached them in October of 2020, you said. Mm-hmm. And your main story broke with, like, your identity. That was, like, a year later, basically. That was, like... Yeah, so that was actually October. basically a year later. It was October 2021. Um, and the only reason why I chose to, like, you know, not do the shadows was... Um, it was talking about a rule change, which... So, yeah, here comes the boring stuff. It's a rule change, which shifted the adjudication of defensive asylum away from immigration judges and gives it to asylum officers. And so, yeah, what, what the hell does that mean? Like, how boring is that, right? Okay. So I said, like, I was talking to the guy about this. I'm like, are people going to get this? And he was like, I mean, you never know, man. It's, who knows, right? Public's public. And I was like, all right, would this help then if, you know, if I, did, if I didn't go shadowed up, if I was my clear voice, whatever. And they were like, well, yeah, it's always better to kind of convey a human expression, a human, you know, whatever, do it. And I was like, all right, then fine, let's do it. Because I really don't think people understand the severity of that rule change. So... The, the, it kind of cascades as far as the importance of it. One, this is not a thing that Joe Biden said he was going to do. In fact, it's the opposite. So in the platform that he received, which he didn't write himself, um, but he says, this is my platform. I am the Democratic Party. And in that platform, if you look under the immigration section, it mentions immigration judge one time. And all it says is, we're going to give immigration judges, like you can pull it up if you want. We're going to give them more authority, more or sorry, less of a political environment. We're going to basically not mess with you guys. Y'all do your job, basically. Um, and it talks about AP and ICE and, you know, making sure that they receive their oversight. Never mentions USCIS. And that's, that's the way immigration works. And that was a major problem because of the, the disparities between the two things. So immigration judges are not judges. They're not like, you know, the wig with the robe, you know, that kind of thing. They're actually lawyers that are assigned by the attorney general to oversee the cases to make determinations. So you do have some, some public accountability because the president decides who the attorney general is going to be and uh, the Senate has to confirm it. So, okay, it's a few layers away, but there, you, there is some influence there for the public. They can pressure. If a million Americans went out yet tomorrow and was like, fire the you know, attorney general, they'd be pressured to do so, right? Not that they would, but they'd be pressured to do so at least. However, asylum officers, they're hired straight by not even USCIS, but one component of USCIS of all the asylum officers. And that's who does the hiring authority for them. So there's zero accountability there. Like, no, they, if there's a culture there that, is, that sways one way or the other and it sways to the left, it is going to show in their work. And it does. Because the way defensive asylum works, this was the whole thing, the adjudication of defensive asylum, um, you're getting kicked out of the country. And, you know, the alien says, wait, 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 but if you do that, I'm going to be harmed. So now he's made his declaration, right? So this then enters the process of defensive asylum. The first thing they have to do is get a screening by an asylum officer. And the name is called reasonable fear or credible fear. That's the name. It doesn't mean your fear is reasonable. And so immigration or um, asylum officers, they were giving a positive determination on those cases around 77 to 80%. But then years later, when they finally go to an immigration judge, and this might take four, five, six, I've seen as long as seven years for this to happen. Then the immigration judge decides if they're going to be granted asylum or not. 
and they were denying cases about 85% of the time. So wow. asylum officers on 80% say yay, and the actual judges, immigration judges, 85% say nay. So it's like, right. okay, guys, like, this is a big deal because, you know, I know the culture of the agency. They're okay. very open borders. Not all asylum officers, not all workers there. They have some, you know, differences and everything, but the culture of the agency, they are all about letting them in. And the major problem with that is um, asylum is actually a route to citizenship. So within, I think it's, I think it's three to, I've got the time frames, like three to four years, maybe you can adjust to become an LPR, a lawful permanent resident. Within a couple years after that, you can naturalize. Huh. And we're seeing about 250,000 illegal entries per month. So it's like, wow. okay, like I, we, we, guys, this is amnesty. You're, you're just not calling it amnesty because amnesty has yeah. got that, you know, that taste in his mouth and no one likes it. But again, it's like It'll never Joe buy. Biden voters, right? But Joe Biden voters, like you like Joe Biden and you said he was going to do this. I know Trump voters are against this thing, but you didn't support this either. So it's like, this is, but it's also not a Joe Biden decision. This did not come from Joe Biden. It right. didn't come from, it didn't come from his secretaries. This came from the, the employees at USCIS. They're the ones that pushed this. And so I was like, all right, I, you know what? It's worth it. I, I got to do it. So I went forward with it, um, did the interview. And then the next week I took leave because I was like, I'm, like, I'm not going to go to work. I just, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm just, oh, it's too much. I don't blame you. So it's not, no, I took a week of sick leave. Forget yeah, I took a week of sick leave. I'm sure they knew why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what, I, I knew I was getting fired. Um, I, I go on investigation uh, about six months later, and no, about five months later in February. And um, I, I knew at that point I was, it was already done. It was over. And I, I signed an NDA, so I can't say everything about the investigation. Plus, I'm sure right now, if my attorney saw this, he'd be like, shut up. But um, what I wanted to do at the end, because again, I knew they were going to fire me, I wanted to change my like profile picture on my Microsoft Outlook account at work to change it to the, the you know, the the, thumb, the thumbnail picture of my Veritas video. Yeah. I was going to change it to that, but I decided not to. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, they don't really get upset at that one. I don't but, um, there any more than I already have. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I'm still glad I did it. I, I did get fired, by the way. That did happen. Um, you said that was, I don't care though. Yeah. That went down uh, February 10th of this year, 2023. I mean, frankly, being fired for doing the right thing, I wouldn't feel bad about it either. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, well, that's the strange part, right? So this part's not in the, in the, in the NDA. They give me their write up, which is like, I mean, it's like this of, you know, this is what's going on. It's government, right? They're going to do what they're going to do. And it talks about like, you know, this is, these are the charges we levy against you. This is what you're accused of, blah, blah, blah. And one of them was not, I wasn't protective. I wasn't careful with the identities of, you know, protected class of people that were seeking asylum. It's like, you're right. I wasn't careful with them because I exposed sex traffickers. Like you guys say these are aliens that are seeking but I say the sex traffickers. So it's like, this is why we have a problem guys. Um, and that was the major thing. And that's why I was just like, I, I don't care. And I talked to Tara about this, by the way, a few of the cases, cause she saw my video. That's what kind of made her go forward. Tara Rodas, sorry, Tara Rodas. Um, and she's so awesome. Um, and I asked her like, oh, she's so great. And I asked her like, you know, please tell me though, that like, after you guys saw this, like you guys were able to then like get a couple of kids out. And she was like, yeah, we, we, you know, this led to a thing and we started looking more heavily and whatever. And a couple of the kids did get pulled out and put them in long-term care. 
And so I was, that was like, all right, that's worth it. Like, I, I don't yep. care if we save one kid out of this, that, that alone is worth it. So, you know, whenever, when I die and God judges me, I hope he tells me good job. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure he will. And yeah, Tara, Tara is lovely. We, um, you know, I, I want to say we enjoyed our conversation with her, which is great to talk to, but it was really intense. She really distracted yeah. me. She told us like firsthand some of the stories that she was getting and some of the experiences that she had, you know, interacting with these kids and it just breaks your heart. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's heavy. It's heavy because you realize like, wow, this is scratching the surface. It's got to be bigger than that. There, there's, oh there's, gosh so many it's of the them are the out iceberg. there you know and like even yeah. what you were seeing from the dhs and you know like up to what you said it was like nine suspicious like sponsors i'm sure there's way more of them that well that, because they so were on this the list was capped yes so yeah. right there could have been you know and still is capped right it's, of course, of course yeah so uh, when i when i was looking at it from my angle before terror came out you know, I just looked at it. I did some basic numbers. Okay, how many members are in these gangs? How many people are crossing the border? How much time? And I was like, man, this got to be like, this got to be a few hundred kids getting trafficked. Like, this is insane. And that's what made me go like, we got to do this, guys. Like, this is, we can't do this anymore. And then Terra's video came out. And, you know, I asked to meet her right away. I'm like, guys, come on, give me your number. They were like, she'll be in Phoenix, you know, at the American Fest, you know, convention. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, you know. She was trying to meet you initially, which is why she contacted yeah. her. <laughs> what she wanted to get your contact info. She wasn't even thinking yet about blowing the whistle, but she was like, I need to talk to this guy. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And so I get to, you know, get to Phoenix um, and I'm running around the convention I'm looking for. I, I see the Veritas spot and I was like, gosh, where's Tara? I want to meet her. They were like, you know, she's around somewhere. You know, there's, we're already at this point on the group chat, but like there's no yeah. cell phone or so we're running around right now that I finally see her. We give you know, a big hug. And it's, it's, it really is like meeting your family. She is such a good person. But then I asked her, I'm like, all right, spill the beans. Like, there's no way that was everything. I want to know everything. Like, tell me everything. So we want to get a coffee and we're just kind of chatting and we're going through it all. And I was just like, I'm way off. Like, this has got to be in the thousands of, of kids. Like, there's no, no way this is accurate. And so then we talked a little more. And then I started reaching out, I made, you know, a few other case manager friends. And I talked to them. And they were at a few different spots doing case management and for a longer time frame. And she's like, Aaron, like the, about 35% of these kids get trafficked minimum, just in, the, just in this program, 35 to 40% probably. But she said like, you know, I would honestly do a wholehearted review of like 75% of these cases because it's just really that bad. So I went from thinking like a couple hundred and then at the end, we're talking to these other case managers, it's like probably in the tens of thousands. That's and so it's, that's what kept me now involved where it's just like, okay, now that I'm fired, you know, what do I do? And it's like, there's no way I, I cannot do this thing anymore. So we've still been obviously working on this. We've been going through, um, I mean, I went through the, the HHS policies, those are their policy, their law, the policy guide, their field guidance, all the, um, like impromptu memos, which is says like, you know, Hey, by the way, now that we got more kids start doing this, like that's how government works. And just understand it because I think when, when people do understand it, it makes it a little bit easier to go like, cause that's one of the one thing I've noticed, sorry, I'm gonna change real quick. One thing I've noticed is, you know, people know there is a problem and they're not afraid to do anything. There's people, people are like, well, what do we do? And I'm not gonna lie. I'm still kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the program has got to stop. Like there's no reform in my eyes of this thing. It's just gotta be ended. But to, in order to get to that process of understanding what to do, 
I think we have to understand what the hell it is before we understand what to do with it. So I'm still like kind of finalizing that to understand this whole complex scheme, which is absolutely constructed. And then from there, we can go from there. Um, and then that got me in touch with domestic fostering agencies of like American kids that have you no know, parents. And I was like, okay, well, this can't be worse. And it's so much worse. Just the, their laws that they have to abide by, their processes, all those things. So maybe this becomes my new life's work. I don't know. It's worth it to me because it's just, you know, these are children. It's like, you just, there's some things you just can't do. And it's, you, you can't let kids, these things happen to them. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I, we don't have kids and like, it's just like the idea that there are tens of thousands of children that weren't, aren't even Americans that are being trafficked here under our noses that, you know, that are, that are being facilitated by our, our tax dollars and our yeah. labor. It's just so mind blowing. I can understand why somebody would be hesitant to, to write it off as a crazy conspiracy theory or, you know, that's just internet radical disinformation. You know, that's the alt right. <sighs> It's like, cause that's what you really want to believe that, yeah. that it's not happening yeah. at the jail because to, to acknowledge this is one of the things that we said with Tara to, to acknowledge that this is happening. You can't ignore it. You can't just be like, Oh, well, you know, the, the authorities will deal with it because they obviously aren't in fact, it seems like the authorities are <laughs> facilitating yeah. it. So it behooves, you know, anybody who has the uh, ability to respond to the situation who hears the information they have to do something you can't yeah. ignore it so i can understand but, for normal people to be like it's but there is a great thing there because you know a lot of people let's go back to 2003 a lot of people were quite divided on the iraq war some were like you know no we got, we got our freedom fries we got to go in there and get the terrorists we got to, you know some were all for it and then that same group of people listened to donald trump in 2016 and all of a sudden, it became very popular on the right. People were like, no, Iraq was a dumb war. And that was like almost overnight. People were like, whoa, that switched. That's, so a, major, it, that's it, a major switch, too. You know, right. Like very so if we can get people... People are fickle. Yeah, but if, if we can get people then to start hearing the worst thing as possible about these kids, and it, it does suck to hear. It, it really does. Um, when I started doing all this research, like I was, you know, I was talking to Tara all the time and like, it's hard. Like I was saying to her, like, there's no way this is possible. We talk on the phone for like an hour and a half. I'd find more information. We'd go through it again. And it's just like this, there's no way. And then you realize like, no, it is very way. This is actually a, a real thing. This is, and this is not just government, like kind of like, Ooh, I'm falling over into a problem again. It's like, no, they're building this whole thing. You can see all the policies and it's when they make them. Yeah, it, it's it, by it, design. Yes, it seems like some, some higher ups want these conditions to exist. And yeah, without a doubt. From oh, and they're probably actively collaborating with international criminal mafias or cartels yeah. in order to, you know, everybody's everybody's you know wheels are getting greased, so to speak. Yeah. You know, well, that's why that's the problem. Yeah, because everyone who's involved in this thing, they're, they all benefit. You know, the cartels—they're not going to stop this because. They're making their money off of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, the nonprofits aren't going to stop this because they're making their money off this. Then you got the government. And what the government's like, well, would they stop this? Why? Because if all of a sudden you take, so let's just go with the, because the, when we say traffic, by the way, it's important to understand that that takes fraud and forced coercion. So basically you're lying to the, to the person, in this case, a child. 
And then the end result of trafficking is either you're a slave or you're in forced prostitution. And uh, I know we're on YouTube, I won't say the R word, but that's what it is. Yeah, and right. when you're, this, these are the only two outcomes. There's no like third one, like you were either a slave or you're a forced prostitute, right? So when it comes to the, to the slaves, like if you take all those slaves out of the workforce, all of a sudden you have lower productivity. And I talked to a case manager about this and she was explaining to me like, cause they say about the, the labor trafficking is about four times bigger than the sex trafficking. And she was explaining it to me as like, you know, you do understand like the reason why eggs are so high right now, right? The price of eggs, that's when they were like seven bucks for 18 of them. Or you guys in New York city, probably whatever the hell it was. Yeah, um, no, yeah. It's average. Yeah. It's been in, yeah. Like 10 bucks for a thousand. But she was explaining though, like, yeah, because Aaron, like there, there've been a few egg farm breaks for recently of trafficked people. And like, that's what is causing the spike in egg prices because we put more oversight in the industry Okay, and what was the end result? Oh, wow, looks like you guys are doing legal things. And so you take away the workers, and all of a sudden, it's just a bunch of eggs sitting there, and now it's hard to get out. Right. You know, the, the supply goes down, demand stays high, price skyrockets. And that's what happened. Yep. And so it's like everybody who's involved in this process benefits from it. And on top of that, just for the political part, then the politicians go out there and say, oh, I'm going to fight the red ties versus blue ties. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do yeah. this. And of course, they never do because they don't care. It's there for that reason. It's, so. Yeah, the conflict, the drama is actually the the, the purpose. They they, yeah. they claim they're going to do things about it, and then they don't. You know, it's it's like the Republican leadership is a joke. Like we don't have, yeah. we, we really don't have a conservative party. We've got a few conservative voices in Congress, thank God, but you know we don't have a, a coherent conservative party. We lost that really when George W. Bush came in with the neocons and sort of. You know, they, they were they came in with compassionate conservatism and then they launched a few wars. It was like, come on, guys, this is exactly that's that's that was kind of my red pill moment to realize that like yeah. psychopaths <laughs> run our world. It's like my little favorite thing. To yeah, I mean, for me, it took a while. We all come to it when we come yeah. to it, right? You know, it's it's. But mm -hmm. the thing is, we're coming to it now, and these, there's things that we can't ignore, like tens of thousands of children being slaved or or sex trafficked. And, you know, that will force people to wake up, hopefully, you know, like we, we, we keep, that's why we want to do the show. We like to have these conversations yeah. because put, just putting the information out there so that, you know, just one or two or, you know, hopefully a hundred people can hear this and then they can tell other people. And the, 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 the information itself is viral because it's so explosive and it's true. And I think there are people out there that, you know, they can hit, they can detect the ring of truth and then they will do their own due diligence and investigation and come to the same conclusion because that's how you kind of figure out what yeah. something's true. You or could not. also, you know, you could do something in your own little corner of the world to contribute to exposing this. It doesn't have to Just be. Just call your politicians. Yeah, you, don't have to, Tara. you don't have to do a podcast like us. Maybe you're not in a position like Aaron to blow the whistle on some big thing. But if you know the information, you know this stuff is happening, you know, have personal conversations in your life people that you know with your family with your friends or like brent said call your representatives ask them like hey are you aware of this are you doing anything about this well any any little thing to put a bit of that pressure on and to make you know make it more well known i think the most important thing is what you said first of talk to your friends and family neighbors yep. talk to strangers about this if you want to but it's like you know that's the most that, that's the hardest step is a the first one but it's to come to the realization of and you get a debate about it, you know, whatever, go with it, like run into it and see what happens. Because when people deny it blindly, it's like, all right, well, that's, that's fine because it's, it's blind. You can go with that. 
Um, but usually by the, by the end of it, like they, people start understanding like, you know, yeah. okay, well that is, that is odd. Well, that is a weird policy. I don't know why they would do that. And it's like, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. That gives you more questions though. Like start doing these things. So yeah, that first part I think is, is tremendously, uh, is needed. Show it's them just the receipts, people to be forced. Too. Exactly. Show them the receipts, show them this conversation. Yeah, I can you put know, Tara links and... in the description. Yeah, sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna link your uh, your so, story. From so Tara when they have some questions, or if they don't believe what you're saying, you know, just be like, "Well, this guy was inside. This woman was inside. This is what they saw. This is what they experienced." It's like, no, this is happening. And well, that's also you know, the best I'm thing about it. So yeah. speaking of receipts, speaking of you know, like whatever. Not one time did my work ever call me a liar or wrong. They just said like, you no, know, hey, you, you know, you, you, we lost trust in you because you won't. Like, yep, cool. I won't do that. You're right. Yeah. But I'm not wrong, and I didn't lie. So it's like, so now what, guys? What? So now work. What do you do about it? And by the way, the answer is nothing. They're they're right. not going to change anything. Their policies. No. They're going to stay the same way. Wow. HHS won't. So that's, so that's crazy. What it's we imagine. Like I just can't. I mean, as as somebody, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like being a part of an organization. You know, you're working. You're all supposed to be common, like working towards a common goal, and to have you know one of your number expose this big problem, be like, ah, there's a problem, and to have the rest of them just be like, eh, no, you're fired. Like it, it just it, it annoys the crap. Not out only of that, look what they did with Tara. They they wanted to investigate her. They launched an investigation of her. It's like here's all mm -hmm. this stuff she brings up that they should be investigating about what's going on, and they're like, no, we're gonna investigate you for talking about it. It's absurd. It's crazy. Yeah, that's my take. There is um, go ahead. That's Sorry, we need. we need more whistleblowers. We need more people in the HHS in the you know department of homeland security to come out as well and to say well yeah i also saw this and i think the more of those people who have the guts and they choose to join your ranks then you know i think enough pressure can start to be put on to at least if not reform the programs like you said dissolve these things because they might not mm -hmm. even be capable of reforming well, i think we might be seeing yeah. it in the near future in the not too distant future especially with the j6 revelations yeah. that have come out and with the COVID revelations that are coming out, it's like all this stuff just keeps coming yeah. out. Like they're not going to be able to hide this, you know, child trafficking scandal for much longer. Well, on, on like on this, you know, question two of whether or not you can even reform these organizations, I'm going to bring up Kyle again because Kyle Serafin, he thinks the FBI should be dissolved. He doesn't tell me the purpose of the FBI. What are they there for now? That's a good question. Like, what is what what crime? has to be, you know, because again, now we live in an age where information can travel like that. So what crime exists that only a federal authority has to be the ones to have the jurisdiction on it? You, you can't name me one crime where, and They used you know, to be for like mafia, like that was their original, they, they were, you know, they busted up like, you know, like illegal mafias, people that were doing uh, like- uh, Interstate crimes. National criminals. Right, they used to do that, right? And now, what are they doing? They're harassing parents. They're locking up protesters, you know, peaceful protesters, or harassing them, trying to intimidate them into being quiet. Uh, it, it's it's definitely not it's not good. And their budget is something like like eighty billion. Last time I read, like <laughs> I was like eighty billion dollars. Crazy. That's from countries. Yeah. Like, and what do they do? They harass parents, and they they lock, I, like I don't. I'm over it too. Like, I, and but the thing is, like these these organizations, when you have a politician that gets into power, they can they can do all their dirty little tricks. Like the CIA, basically, you know, we assassinated JFK because he was you know trying to mess with them.
And those those interests, those organizations, those those powers that be still exist out there. And a lot of them are sort of like nameless and, and they have lots of money, which makes them very powerful. So it's it's a pickle. It's it's a yeah. pickle in what's the DH? But the but the hard part there too is like people understand that there's a deep state and a permanent government when it comes to your, you know, your FBI, your NSA, your CIA. But it's like that's the hard part people don't understand as well. It's like, no, guys, it's not just them. Like, I was at U USCIS, 15,000 people strong, a very tiny corner of the government, and we had corruption everywhere. It's, it's just the nature of government. You know, and that's the thing people understand is, um, well, I get religious there. I don't believe in there's any good man-made government. It's just, you know, how long can one exist for a certain amount of time and not be, like, totally corrupted? For a republic... If you have a good citizenry, it can go for a little while, right? For democracies, probably a lot less. For communism, you, have, you better have like unlimited resources, which no one ever does. That's why it falters. And it's like all these, uh, every government though has these major problems. There will have to be change eventually. And that's, you know, that was written in the, in the uh, Declaration of Independence. It's part of it saying like, you know, hey, when, you, when it goes awry, when it goes bad, it's up to you to make the changes necessary as you guys seem fit. And we're at the time where it's like, well, uh, tell me that we shouldn't do these things. Tell me there shouldn't be, uh, if you want to go political, like a convention of states or whatever. You know, we're at a moment now, I think, where it's like people are okay hearing that without freaking out. Yeah, which is crazy. It's like FBI's budget is roughly $10 billion a, a year. So the, the DHS budget is around 50 from what I'm seeing. What? Well, DHS is more than the FBI. Reported in 2021, it was $49.8 billion. Damn. So it's, around, it's probably around that Damn. still. And I wonder what the number is when you start adding up all these three-letter agencies and their budgets. You know, the NSA, the CIA, the DIA, the uh, HHS. That's the, an absurd number. It's sure. probably, uh, I mean, I guess when you start adding, that's the budget, you know, that's we're getting the trillions of dollars there, really. Yeah, That's how much mm -hmm. money it takes to run the government. Too much. Too much. Well, the craziest thing, too, about, you know, we mentioned this in the episode of Tara, about the whole child trafficking thing is, like, taxpayers are funding that. You know, like, and this is what people watching this see. Supposed to be roads and bridges and healthcare. But ask yourself, it's child trafficking. If you're watching this, ask yourself: Do you want portions of your tax money to go towards trafficking children, <laughs> to you know, unvetted sponsors after they get, you know, after they cross from the border? Like, is that the other thing that drives me? That drives me up a wall is that we have a you know a populace of young people who are just so caught up in you know trans rights and gay rights and you know they want reparations for african American, all this stuff all this, all this social shit, justice yeah. when we have modern day slavery yes. happening right now and they don't know about it they don't care well, about it they're not protesting about it they don't care about it because it, it's being revealed by groups like project veritas and they're all alt right far they, right that's whatever what right. they see it's they like, google them or they look at what they're it's doing it's not a left right paradigm yeah. here this well, is children in slavery i mean i don't think that the left right <laughs> issue and, and the government my, facilitating it again it's not my point is they don't actually care about the issue 
folks. They they care about looking righteous and and compassionate, but like it's, until that until actually yeah. caring becomes popular, which is something we can maybe popularize. Maybe, but I think you are correct in your assessment. Like if these people actually had real compassion, they wouldn't be um, throwing all this energy into like shit like reparations. You know, for for reparations for what for people who never lived through for people slavery. who were in slavery two hundred fifty years ago. We yeah. got people in slavery now, right now, right now, right now, and it's like they don't say anything about that i don't hear a word from antifa and these radical left groups about any of this they're, they're they all they're all in the past yeah. they're you know 1619 project like, why aren't they protesting outside of the hhs headquarters where are they like they're protesting outside of you know the event the New last York night King republicans club. like Last we went night, to watch some people speak against Drag Queen Story Hour. Yeah, so last night there was an event at the New York Young Republicans Club, and you know that's where they show up to go protest people having a conversation. <laughs> there about, wasn't very many of them. Though. It was a, a couple dozen, but like still, the point is like that. That's where they're putting their energy so, into finding out this location. I, I gotta protest this talk, you know, about drag queens and kids, but they're not outside the headquarters of these major government, you know, organizations trafficking kids. It's I, ridiculous. I, I gotta ask guys, so have you ever been to those uh, lefty type, you know, marches and protests, whatever? You ever been to those things? Eh, you know, I kind of went out a little bit during the, the St. Floyd marches, just because I was curious. The closest yeah. I know from Occupy Wall Street days. Occupy Wall Street. I was oh, that's Occupy. old school. That's old school, and that, that's like... Yeah. Back when we were actual, like, you know, I was, I was a proud liberal back then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I've, I've been to a few... Um, cause again, I lived in Alexandria in 2020. So yeah, a few times I went into DC at nighttime and just walked around, you know, and I, I have long hair, so I can kind of fit in a little bit. I put the mask on. So and I really, I really looked apart, right yeah, but I just walked around just, well, yeah, but I just kind of soaked it in. Like, you know, what's actually, what's going on. I'm trying to feel it and trying to see it. And it's just like, man, this is nuts. But, um, I went to, uh, two protests in DC. Other than that, one was a friend of mine. He asked me to go some immigration one and he asked me personally and i was like i'll go with you dude like if you're if you're being sincere about it you you want me to go with you like i'll go with you and like everyone checking you know hey, here, here's a sign i'm not carrying a sign and they started like doing a chant i'm like i'm not singing a song like i'm not doing this thing, guys i'm here with my buddy you know he wanted me to go i'm gonna go what protest and so we you know what's that what protest was this again and it was some immigration thing i don't know but i was just, he wanted me to go and you know, no no one else was going with him and i was just like well, if I'm your friend, I'm going to be there for you, whether I disagree with you or not. It's like, if you want support, I will support you, bro. Um, but I wasn't the one being like, you know, yeah, open up, you know, whatever. Right. And then the other one I went to was, because again, I used to live in Charlottesville, Virginia. So when I saw that Charlottesville thing pop off, I was like, well, that was nuts. That's not, that's not Charlottesville people. I used to live there, you know? Then there was a Unite the Right 2, and one was going to be in D.C. And I was like, well, now I want to go. Because <laughs> I, I want to see what it's going to be like. And like, I think nine you know, unite the writers, whatever they were called, like showed up. And there was like thousands that were against it. And so I'm in the crowd, like kind of the people against it. And it was June, it's kind of hot outside. And I'm sitting there listening to just, I'm kind of up front too. And I'm listening to the, you know, the songs and the, you know, whatever, right? And then this is DC, okay? So it's it's a, a big, pretty, pretty substantial size of population are black people, which means their police force has a substantial size of, pop of this population that are also black. And these people are singing songs, songs of how the police are the KKK. And like, they're looking in the eyes of this, of the, and this is like, this is I think 2018, maybe 2019. But that's when I was just like, oh, they're lying. They're not telling the truth. They're, they're just, 
thing all the time. Got it. And that's when I really kind of started seeing it. And then I just, it took a minute for me to be like, wow. Like I never listened to it before, but I kind of did this time. And I was just like, okay, so maybe if they're lying about that, like, I wonder if they're lying about other things too, you know? And I just kind of started that way out. And then that's what kind of got me into 2020 when I just, that's when I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, we have lost it. Like this, and that's, I got dark and I'm like, this whole thing's coming down. There is a shelf life in this project and it's, it's expiring pretty soon. Not that it's a bad thing, you know, not, not, no map stays, you know, there's no such thing as the map. There was a right. map and maps change and I'm okay with that. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now when people ask me like the whole, like, you know, what's your label? Um, I just say right wing. I hate that question. Yeah, I'm, I'm so bad at wings. I, I'm good with it. Christian, right wing, whatever you want. I'll take it. <laughs> BYO labels. Like, I don't, you know, I'll wear whatever. I'm, I like America. That's like kind of my thing. Yeah, you're not even allowed yeah. to like, like America. That's, that's too extreme of a statement now. Yeah. I'm not even like, I, I was, a, I was traditional, you know, very progressive, very liberal. You know, I'm, I come from the classical liberal school of thought where, you know, everyone has an equal value. Everyone, you know, deserves equality before the law. We don't. Yeah, they like that. Right. Enlightenment principles, yeah. you know, classic, you know, the classic liberal ideas. That's kind of, you know, my mm -hmm. wheelhouse. Um, and that's where I'm comfortable. Those are my values. But I wouldn't say that, you know, I never really, I, I called myself a, a moderate liberal or a classical liberal before. But now I'm just like, I'm not really, I have, a, I have positions on issues that would be considered conservative. Like I'm very conservative when it comes to the border now, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily a you know, conservative, that's just, a, like, to me, it's like, you, do you want a door on your house yeah, or do you want like, it open so that the criminals yeah. can come inside and steal your shit? Yeah, but it, it, it is a conservative position, though, and I know Jordan Peterson has talked about this all the time. Like, why? Like, what's conservative about well, closing your front door to your house? Conservatives like, it be... like borders. They like things in order and, and you know, and the I get it, but I feel like, like I feel that. like They're even a liberal open. is going to want a door on their bedroom. They're going to want a door Sure, sometime. but they, I don't think they... Especially the limousine liberals right these are like yeah. super rich they don't want to mix with you know the well just oh, yeah. they love their game play it out play out their own position where they you know they believe in open borders for a sovereign country okay fine so do you believe in borders for your like leftist meeting you know or how about your little leftist rally like do you believe in open borders then can we go ahead and just infiltrate it and walk right in and start you know having mass can we go in there and start you know Tim, let's teach some Russian classes. Like, how far do you guys want to go with this one? Let's have some fun. Right. And you'll, you'll just, you know, they don't believe in these things. It's just, it's a, it's a tool that they use. You know, yeah. Ted Kaczynski was right about that. They, they, he was actually spot on, I think. So. Well, they have no, there's no consistent principles, right? It's still, they'll just speak whatever is uh, expedient in the moment in order to accomplish their goal. So that's a strange thing. It's because it's almost like a paradox because they have no principles, except their only principle, which is to change, in which they're very principled because all they do is change. So in a way, it's kind of like... It's like they can't even exist in like linear time. Like they're, own, they're like stuck in a single moment and they can't see how their own behavior is kind of contradictory to their own stated goals. So they, it's very weird. Well, they're, they're all also obsessed with the past and the way that a lot of the radical activists the left-wing activists seem to act is they act as if no progress has been made in this country 
at all. Like we are still living like time has not plantation moved. times, Jim Crow maybe, era. Maybe it's like, more like indicative of like a fundamental difference in people who have trouble like processing time and existing in time. Maybe, but I think the I think the term woke is appropriate. The term woke is appropriate for them though, past because tense. it's the past tense of wake. And they're not See, awake. I... <laughs> they're woke. They're stuck in the past. They're fixated on the past. And according to them and their worldview, America is just as bad, just as racist, just as all these things that they say it is, you know, it is, or that it once was. Today, it's the same in their minds, at least. Yeah. What I prefer actually is I love I love it when they use their own language because then I can really kind of stay with them and learn what they're actually talking about. Like when they move on to. My you know, some buzzword, right? And it's like, oh, cool. We I don't know that word, so now I'm gonna go look for that word everywhere, and I'm gonna see what you guys are really talking about now. And so you go into these YouTube channels that have like maybe 100 followers, and they're very small, which is cool. I'm fine with that. Or these you know online forums, and they're just blasting these words out there. But just pay attention to what they're saying. It's like, oh wow, like because these are the psychos that are like five years ahead of the mainstream left. Um, can I actually promote a, a YouTube channel that does this? Totally, please yeah, go for it. Um, uh, what's your full name? Carlin Borsinko, I think oh, she does sure, this thing called sure. socialist Saturdays. Oh, and that's cool. when I kind of started seeing it as well. And it's like, she, she will watch the most far left things. And it's like, it's frightening. It's like, wow, they're talking about like, you know, parents shouldn't have custody of their children anymore. And it's like, oh. wow, that's in five years from now. Right. You can see oh my gosh. Like the future if they are allowed to win. It's kind of yeah, like exactly. that, like, you know, kids of TikTok and, and, you know, I in the classroom, they do yep. similar to that. But yeah, that's, uh, that's actually, that could be a fun project. Yeah. Well, and they say we're just, you know, conspiracy theorists and crazy anti-fascist, uh, sorry, fascist right-wing people, you know, and that we were crazy when we say they're coming for the kids. But it's like, no, like, if you listen to what the radical ones say, they quite literally are coming for the kids. Yeah, they're they're doing, like, it was like, no, they're attacking the family at every front. thinking about it. Yeah, well, it's crazy i don't know it's the the whole thing is nuts you know and i'm not saying obviously there is extremism from the right and if anything the extremism from the left just exacerbates extremism from the right um we're gonna have our friend jack buck beyond soon to talk about that particular topic as well but uh the division in the country is really concerning and it's definitely it's been increasing over the last couple years and I'm not saying we're heading for like civil war or whatever. I know Tim Pool loves to say like, oh, you know, we're probably heading we're for civil war. We're sort of in like a cold. You can see we're in like it's a like cold, a civil, cold war. civil war, sort of. It's more it's, like, yeah. I think of it more of as like an information or a cultural like war. Like culture war is what it tends to be called. You know, we're, we're in yeah. a battle of ideas. The weapons sure. are, you know, information. Yeah. Um, I listened to, and I'm not going to promote General Hayden, Michael Hayden, but he's a smart dude. He's actually very intelligent. He's also an idiot in some things too. But I listened to the speech he gave in 2017 at Johns Hopkins Sayus in DC, the School of Advanced International Studies. And he goes out there, gives us a whole conversation. And he talks about um, how he believes, and I think he's right here, how Western civilization as a whole, like this is not Civil War II. This is not going back to, you know, even like the revolutions of the late 18th century, like, you know, in America and France. This is going back further to the, like the peace of Westphalia or the Treaty of Westphalia, where we are really starting to ask the question again of like, what is a state? What is a citizen? Are political boundaries, are those things even real? Because maybe politics aren't the best way to draw maps. Maybe it should be more cultural. Maybe it should be more something, right? Some kind of identity, identity which is not just based on what you think at the time. And I think that is a good argument 
because I've heard it kind of reflected when people talk about things like, I think it was the Senator Spoon when he writes things like, you know, we didn't vote on the Constitution. We didn't. We inherited it, you know? And I take that, I'm like, well, I know we didn't vote on Social Security, and that's a contract between generations. Is that? So it's like, I think we're really kind of getting to that point where it's not that's going to, things going to unwire, but I think it's going to be thought about now with actual sincerity of like, this whole thing may be different than we really think it is. If you look at Central Europe, kind of like Germany, and just go west, it's all happening in all these places. It's happening in France, um, Spain a bit, definitely Germany, England, us, Canada. Like we're all kind of hitting these points where it's like there's some there's some stuff happening right now. I just what what's it going to be in the end? I don't know. Aaron, but can I'll I take the reins. Your uh, your military experience. Sure, dude. You were so. Were you? Did you like? Uh, you were a marine, so that, I assume that means you you know saw some shit. Uh, like, what was that like being in? So you went to Iraq and Afghanistan. I guess your question is, were you in combat at some point? I guess that's yeah. Right. So in 2004, 2005, I was in uh, Najaf, and we didn't know that on the way over. So when we deployed, we didn't know we were going yet. We found out like while on the boat, and sorry, Navy people, we called a boat. And we, we got the briefing, like, you know, yeah, we're actually, because we, we all thought, like, oh, we're going to either go to Fallujah or Baghdad, because, you know, Fallujah just popped off in April, and Baghdad is Baghdad, of course, right? And so we were just like, well, we're going to go to one of those two places. And then they were like, you're going to Najaf. And we were all like, where the hell is that at? And it's in the hot part of Iraq, as we used to joke about, because <laughs> it was so hot there. And, um, yeah, I was there, and that was in the um that was basically like south south southwest of uh, baghdad but that was the fight against um mutador al-sadr in 2004 uh, which sucks too because now he's like a main player in iraq still but whatever um and i was there through 05 and the the, the major combat part was actually kind of short we did a deliberate assault on the cemetery and uh my unit we fought against mutador al-sadr's like forces and it was it was kind of quick. It was then it kind of evolved into more of like a three block war, and it was most of the combat operations were kind of over. There was still we just still did some you know raids. We still did some targeting, but it was primarily rebuilding the city that we like helped you know kind of blow up. Um, but then it was a big humanitarian thing too, like taking care of people. You know, taking care of like oh shoot we you know we killed your kid sorry we'll take care of that. You know, fix infrastructure those kind of things, and. I like the de deployment a lot. I mean, you obviously the friendships you make, but like actually getting to know the people because we went out every single day. So we spent a lot of time with Iraqis. And that was, I mean, to be honest, it was actually a very, I think growing up time for me, I was 21, 21, 22, 21. And it was just kind of like, you know, you, you learn a lot. It's like you go through life kind of fast in those environments and it's, it was kind of worth it, I guess. In 07, um, I went to Rawa, Iraq, and that was, uh, so basically northwest of Haditha, which is northwest of you know Baghdad. And I was there with uh, first LAR, and that was a great deployment. I like those guys a lot. And my actual unit was called First Intel Battalion. And you get, like they farm out analysts to go support. So I was supporting, you know, first light armor reconnaissance. And um, by that point in time, the war shifted away and I'm in a different operating environment, obviously. But it was fun because again, like I'm I'm not I'm not Asset, you know, you, you got this whole new, different type of you know, unit there, but it was also still a kind of a working in cohesion with the army because they had the next boundary over from us. So you kind of learn and grow as an analyst. 
in 08, it was getting boring, I thought. It was just kind of like I spent their time, you know, kind of getting over with it. Um, and then my kids were both born by uh, 2010 when I was getting out. And I'd already re-enlisted once. I had eight years in. And I was like, all right, should I make a career of this? Do I still believe in it? Or should I, you know, and so I was like, no, nah, I don't believe this anymore. I don't, I don't want to go to Iraq again. I'm kind of done with that. I'm just going to get out. And that's when I decided to, to become a contractor until I got a job. And so when I contracted, um, I actually was going to, I was going to take a position where I would have been in the Levant and helping out like other, you know, targeting type stuff. And it would have paid a lot more money, but it's like, more. it wasn't a new, a new mission. It's like, I already kind of knew it. It's like, yeah, you knew, learn more things, but it's like, you kind of know the job of the analysis already. So I took a position, um, that was learning biometrics and forensics. So utilizing, you know, basically science to dominate the battle space and as we would brief the battalion commanders, like basically my job here is to tell you who's killing your Marines. And we'll tell you that and I'll help you guys out, do what you guys want to do. And that's what our, our job was. And then we did the same thing for the special operations in those next two years, 2011 and 2012. So, um, and the, they were two different, very two different wars, I reckon Afghanistan. Obviously, you know, the, the enemy is different, the terrain's different, that shapes a lot of, you know, your operations. But um, definitely because of the coalition thing, that was weird to me. Like I worked with some UK people as a Marine in Iraq, some, it was mostly Americans. But when I went to Afghanistan, like I was working with Brits, uh, a Polish dude, there was, I mean, there was just everybody there. And it was weird to me. Cause it's like, you know, it's like now we have to use this one cent, this one thing called Centrix, it was a computer system. And then it was just, it was just this whole thing where it's like, this feels disjointed. like. I feel like we're all slowing each other down. And here's the funniest part too. So on July 4th of 2010, um, we had to lower the American flag on our base because we didn't have all the flags of the rest of the coalition. We didn't have like, I don't know, Lithuania's or Estonia's or like Bahrain. And so because we didn't have them all, we couldn't find any of them. So they ordered our base to lower the American flag and don't fly it again and put everything else up on Independence Day. So I was just like, wow. <laughs> Again, like I started seeing things, right? Communists. NATO, bro. Mm. NATO. NATO. Yeah. So I was like, I was reading over here about the Battle of Najaf in 2004, and I'm assuming that's the one that, the same one you were talking about. Um, yeah. What does the internet say, Daniel? Um, you know, it was fought between, you know, the United States and the Iraq forces on one side against the Islamist Mahdi army and the Muqtada al-Sadir on the other side. Yeah, and it took place in August of 2004. Um, I remember you mentioned the cemetery. Apparently, that's where they were getting weapons resupplied and all that stuff. It was like a weapons mm -hmm. drop. Um, yeah, so the cemetery it was the largest in the Muslim world, approximately seven miles um, layered over the centuries, resulting in large underground tombs, tunnels, and surface monuments, um, many reaching two stories tall. Convenience. Yeah, and the Marines of one fourth uh, fought across this inhospitable terrain under it in some of the first tunnel fighting scenes since Vietnam. Interesting. Jesus. Did you fight in? Yeah. Okay. No, not tunnels. No. Um, <laughs> but so I knew. So I knew a couple of the because I wasn't a grunt. I was an intel guy. I knew a couple of the the grunts that went in the first wave. And what was happening was. So there was in the, if you look at a map of Najaf, there's this thing called Ring Road. And it's like, it's a very old city. So it looks, it looks like what you think it would, right? And this thing goes around the, you know, the inner part of the city and there's a cop station on the corner. 
and like you could basically run 50 yards and be in a cemetery. So what was happening was a bunch of um, you know, Mahdi militia guys, they would come out, light up the cop station, they would call the, the QRF, the quick, quick reaction force, those Marines, they would drive down, it takes a few minutes because you know, Humvees are slow, whatever. And by the time they would get there, they'd run in the cemetery. Okay, they go back, a couple hours later, happens again. They come out, they get lit up, they call the QRF, they run back in. So the third time, and this was the rule, which is we couldn't go in the cemetery. It was off limits to US forces. Hmm. Happened the third time, and the lieutenant in charge was just like, yes, we're going in. So they followed him in, and they just take these guys out. Wow. But then you see more evidence, they were like, yeah, this looks like it's more than just one, you know, 20 bad dudes. This looks like it could be a thing. And within a few days, um, you know, there was a great collection on it, good sources. I mean, they already kind of knew what was going on, but they were like, okay, we're just clearing this thing out. This is the way it is. So when the, uh, the Marines hit, when one four went in, I think it was Charlie Company, or I forgot it was, but they go in and they start kind of clearing through the cemetery and all of a sudden they're getting fired from behind them. They're like, whoa, we just cleared. So they went back, they, you know, did it again. Then they realized a lot of these, uh, the, the tombstones were actually catacombs. So it went under and through. And that's when it was like, oh, okay, this is really becoming a, a, a three, third dimensional battle space in all realities, forward, back, left, right, up and down. Right. And, you know, the Marines had a hell of a job there because it was a, it's a very revered place. It's very, very um, spiritual for, for Islam and for Muslims, especially for Shia Muslims. Yeah. And so now they got to go kill an enemy who's utilizing infrastructure against them and you can't destroy the infrastructure. And they did a great job. They pushed them all back. And then Sadr basically pulled all of those inside of the shrine. And the shrine is basically a mosque, but it's got um, a dead person inside of it. So this is called the Mamali Shrine. And it, I'm not gonna lie, it's beautiful. It's got almost awesome mosaic, golden roof. Yeah. When the sun hits in the evening, it's just like, wow, that's, that is pretty cool looking. Uh, Islamic architecture is stunning. It is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. Mathematics and all that. It's, it's great just... when they're not trying to blow you up. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. Just... Well, so, <laughs> for real. <laughs> But like the closer they got to that, to that, you know, very, very holy place for, for, uh, for Muslims that took away a lot of support. So like air support started getting dwindled. Then it was only helos. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, you can't fire the howitzers anymore. You can only do mortars. And then the mortars went down from one twenties down to like the 88s. And like, so it became much more reliant on, you know, the grunts being grunts and just, you know, shoot, move, communicate. And it was a hell of a job for them. They did it pretty quick too. But, and that's one, uh, and this is actually the, the one of the last stages of this part. So it was kind of, you know, kind of quiet for a few days. So my team was given the job of like, all right, well, you know, you guys are sitting there now and there's no more need for like a mobile gun team just to go support. You guys go help out this convoy of like resupply stuff. So you gotta go drive out to like Diwania and, you know, come back the next day, all right, whatever. Drive out there, we load, you know, the trucks get loaded up and there's only four gun trucks and I'm in the, the third to last one. And that's right, second to last one. And so we called in the morning on the way back. We're like, hey guys, is the route is the route, route clear? We cool? Anything going on today? And then Shop was like, nah, man, you guys are good. You're all right. You're right. No overhead assets. You guys will be fine. As we start driving, we start seeing about an hour from the city, we start seeing like, you know, just, wow, there's a lot of people out today. You know, we've been there for a few months now. It's kind of weird. What the hell's going on? Whatever. Then all of a sudden it's like, there's a lot of dudes out here. <laughs> And it's like, is anybody else getting mean mugged? I'm getting stared at pretty hard here, guys. And we're kind of driving through. And it turns out um, the Sistani, uh, or sorry, the Ayatollah Sistani, which is like a very high religious leader, he flew back from London from getting heart disease. 
And apparently he was pissed that this was all going on. He was mad at Sodder for doing all this. Well, his dudes are all there. And it's like, yeah, but these are a bunch of Americans that are killing, you know, killing us too. So, so we have to drive through this, uh, like just mass crowd of people on the road. And there had been like probably 5,000 guys out there, but it's like, there's, you know, no, there's no women, there's no kids. You know what they're all there for. Right. So we're driving through, we're, we're keeping calm. We're not freaking out. We're not like postured up to go crazy on them. But we're also sitting there like, we're not going to be, you know, like intimidated either. So we're driving through, driving through, and it gets so bad where a couple guys got to get out and like start like moving guys back. And we're being cool. Like, you know, we don't know who they are. They, don't, they know who we are, but we're just kind of trying to deal with it. And then we finally got through. And then that's when, uh, so Sauter had some of his forces out. They started lighting us up. So we lit them back up. Um, they just hit up the, this I police, the Iraqi police checkpoint. Um, and it just got this thing where it's like, you know, that could have gotten way worse. Thankfully it didn't, but then we get back and then like, we're all kind of like, you know, whew, that was, wow, that was intense. And we're having a cigarette, you know, we're having a you know can of Coke, best cigarette I had in my life. It was just like, everyone's kind of like, man, now we got out of that thing. And then like, I think someone like dropped like a uh, something and it made like a boom noise. And like everybody like jumped on the ground because <laughs> we all got freaked out. Wow. It was kind of funny. We're also laughing afterwards. But yeah. That's that's crazy, man. Like honestly, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that type of environment situation. I feel very uh sheltered and soft in comparison. <laughs> you live you guys live in New York City. I've been in New York City. No offense, man. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable there too. <laughs> yeah, well it's a different type of uh that's for sure. So you don't have to worry about like randos with an AK yeah, coming no. out from behind the building. That's true, but <laughs> doesn't mean you know there aren't crazy why I like America because we can walk <laughs> around here and not be worried about, you know, somebody just randomly No but I mean Yeah so to be fair though like the Rocky people they, they were really great. Uh, we did a lot of humanitarian stuff. There. So we'd always go out and like, you know, hand kids soccer balls, you know, throw candy at or whatever. But like every time we went out, like, especially the older folks, they were like, you know, hey, do you guys want to go inside and like, you know, have some food with us and like have some beverages basically? We'd be like, no, we can't do that. And at first I was freaked out. I'm like, no, these guys are going to try to cut my head off on Al Jazeera. Like, they're not doing this. Yeah. But then yeah. they were like, they were just like, no, like, the, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, because they're people and people right. are very nice. Um, then what we used to do, we, so we started learning some Arabic and of course we learned all the bad words first, but then the only thing that I really remember was how to say, uh, it was, uh, anti Jamila, which means you're beautiful. And anytime you saw like, cause we were 21 guys. Right. So every time you saw like, you know, a, a good looking chick walk past, you just do anti Jamila. They'd always blush and kind of smile. <laughs> That's fun. But Iraq was kind of, I would love to go back. The, the people are great. Um, I never got to enjoy the food. I only ate like really real local food one time there. And it was with um, a tribe that they kind of did this whole thing. Cause we helped them out a lot and they were really cool with us. So we, you know, they were like, Hey, let's have you guys throw a dinner. So we went to their place and we sat down with them and we ate fish from the Euphrates. And I got sick as a dog, man. <laughs> like I lost five pounds that day, at least like it was just coming out of me. And that was, that was bad. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one thing about going around the world. That there are different types of bacteria yeah, that exist doesn't... in the natural environment that right. Yeah. To, and so the natives don't really notice because they get exposed from youth. But you know, when we come from another part of the country, it's or another part of the world. Yeah, there's an adaptation. Um, 
Afghanistan was pretty cool too. Um, like one of our bases, it was like right, we had a, I mean, like a hedge as our as our our uh, barrier basically to the outside, you know, little village right there. And there was always kids running over. And they, this is 2010, 2011. Like they knew the game. They knew we were gonna give them candy. They knew we were gonna give them soccer balls. So we would just, you know, we'd give them stuff, throw them stuff. They would, they would love us. Um, actually, the crazy one was so one time I was flying back from uh, Fab Salerno. It's called Rocket City, and the 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 airstrip is like really short. And like when you take off, like you, yeah, it, it feels like the wheels are gonna clip a house. Like it's right there. But across this little lot, there was a bunch of kids like on a fence line. They would always come out. And just kids be kids. They would like, you know, make faces, do somersaults, just, you know, they're children, right? You're having fun. And uh, so we would be there. We'd like put guys on our shoulders and like we'd mirror what they were doing. Just, you know, you're human beings, you share a connection. But then like, I think it was a, a week later, I was supposed to go back there and I couldn't, couldn't catch a flight. But thankfully, because it was that day that there was that massive car blast, it was a, it was a huge um, suicide, you know, car bomb and followed on by like fighters. But it was like right at where we were at on that flight line because of that big open field. Oof. And it was just, you know, like sitting there thinking about it. It's like, I wonder if the kids were out there that day and they had to tell the kids like, hey, get out of here. Like, you know, get away type thing. And it's just kind of like the humanity part of it. It's like, man, it's just it's just wild. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty messed up. War, war, is, war is crazy. That's why I like with the situation in Ukraine, it's like they, they keep throwing <laughs> money and weapons and... You know, like it's not. It, it's for me. I don't think Ukraine is really something we should be spending over a hundred billion dollars on. You know, and and it's their war. It's their conflict. Like, it, it, and it's also Russia's doorstep. So, what yeah. business do we have? Like, if Russia took over, like Montreal, for example, you think the United States would stand for that? No, absolutely not. Of course. So, like, it's just like let them. You know, settle the difference. Well, right. too nuanced, Brad. Uh, you can't have those positions. But remember, I told you guys. You know, I, that's when I learned like these people are not telling the truth. They don't believe in these things. Yeah. Next time we talk to one, these these pro-war, you know, Slava Ukraini guys, just ask them when did the war start. Right. And if they say you know February 2022, you know who you're talking to. It's like all right, you yeah. you're good. I'm not gonna bother. Yeah. And some will say like you know 2014. Yeah. And it's like oh cool, like we can talk. Can you please reconcile yeah. what's going on? And they always say like, "Well, no." So, right? Yeah, I mean, like that. They Ukraine multiple times broke the the Minsk agreements, and then after Minsk, they came out and admitted that the Minsk agreements was just a stall to buy time for Ukraine to build up its military and get more weapons. It was just like the whole thing. Everything with Ukraine is just so shady and corrupt. And then their president Zelensky was an actor. Before yep. becoming yep. president, he actually played the president of Ukraine in Ukrainian television before being the president of Ukraine. I still think that's so crazy. <laughs> it's like, what are the chances? And somehow he's got tens of millions of dollars, like conservative estimate between 10 and 20 million is his net worth right now. Conservative estimate. Yeah. Where and, that, that that's after the, and that's after the studio they built for him and his green screen as right? he walks around Ukraine. <laughs> Just everything about it. It really, you know, drives me up a wall. But Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, um, we appreciate it. Where can people find you? What's your? Are we got um, HS. That's your Twitter. Do you have a website? Yeah, that's my Twitter. I think it's my one. Um, I was recommended to go on Truth as well, so I'm on Truth as well. I'm not on there that much because I've never been on there very long. Um, and I actually just signed up for Twitter when I verified I was getting fired. I was like, all right, cool. I'll make my handle now. Here I come. <laughs> um, and then I just, it goes from there. But. Um, the biggest thing I just would ask is 
and it's not just like my story, but it's terrorists too, but it's also a ton of whistleblowers. It's a ton of groups. There's a lot of anti-trafficking groups. Um, just please pay attention to them. And you know, it is, it is a real thing. That's the hardest part to understand is a, what trafficking is and trafficking is just a, a polite way to say, you know, basically stealing a child and forcing them into slave labor or forced prostitution. And that they're going to die in seven to 10 years. That's the average lifespan of a traffic victim, seven to 10 years. But it's, it's a real thing. It's like, no, no, this, this is actually happening. And you're right. It's, it, this, the, it sucks to listen to. It's so hard to hear. Yeah. But it's like, but if you ignore it, it's like, well, I mean, it says, it says a lot about you if you ask me. So just, you know, be brave, kind of run with it. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end. Everyone, thank you for watching this episode. Um, please go follow Aaron. He's uh, at called underscore out underscore DHS on Twitter. You'll find him on there. And, links in the description. Uh, we'll put the links in the description and share this conversation with people and have these conversations with people in your life and talk to them about what's going on. But thanks for watching. We'll be back with another one very soon. Stay safe. Stay sane. Love you. Bye-bye. Thank you all.